0: Some of you will hear these verses being read or read them yourselves and you will say, oh wow, yeah, I've read a lot about this passage. This is a strange passage of scripture. And some of you will read it and you'll say, okay, that seems kind of interesting, but not that big a deal. And I've never heard of this being a strange passage of scripture. And um, I think some might think... It's being (laughs) overcomplicated. There's all sorts of responses people have to this passage of Scripture. Just to give you a quick little note, Alan Ross, a very good scholar, biblical scholar, said, The present section of Genesis has been the subject of debate for centuries, most scholars considering it to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the Pentateuch. Um, And then Kenneth Matthews says, Unquestionably, 6, 1 through 4 is the most demanding passage in Genesis, For the interpreter every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty so that's what we're going to do today the most difficult passage in genesis after studying it working through it i would say it's probably one of the most debated passages in the entire old testament so this is what i mentioned in the announcements today if I were to say, okay, here's all the different interpretive elements. Here's all the different words and the different unique things that make this so demanding and difficult. And here's all the viewpoints. And by the way, there are uh, div- there are three major viewpoints and a major interpretive element of this text that date back to before Christ. In the debate over it. it was before even Jesus. Through the Jewish Septuagint, they debated debated this text, of scripture. If we were to do that, we'd be here for like several hours. So that's why I want to, we're going to get the main idea of the text. We're going to see it applied in God's, for our lives and hopefully something that will encourage and challenge you. But the difficulties, the primary difficulties and the various different interpretive elements of it, we're actually going to do that, continue that on Wednesday night at seven o'clock. If you can't be here for that, it should be recorded, uh, but we'd encourage you to come. You can ask questions about the text of scripture. And so for some who were looking at this, expecting to have this really like rigorous, we're going to find out the full detail of this text of Scripture, you have to come back on Wednesday. Because we're not going to entertain all the different potential elements in interpreting it. But we want to read it and pray and get God's help, and then talk through the text of Scripture and be encouraged by God's Word. Verse six, Chapter 6, verse 1 begins, Now it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown." Father, help us as we enter into the study of this text. This is your word. This is truth. This is recorded witness of history uh, by your spirit through Moses for us. This is no small thing to open your word and to teach and to hear it preached. Uh, And as we noted, and you are very well aware of, this is a very difficult text um, interpretive-wise. Lord, it's one of those that wrestled much this week and with a lot of... um, Reading and trying to understand. And, and Lord, I pray that this would be profitable to your people. Uh, that it wouldn't be an exercise in intellectualism. Nor would it be uh, over uh, ignoring the difficult things. But rather instead we would be challenged and encouraged. Convicted and rejoicing when we leave today. And I pray your spirit would, would give us illumination. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to kind of lay out what the text is about before we get into it. First of all, we will read, there is an A, B, and a C here, ABCs. A, humanity's exponential growth is recorded, both their growth in population and their growth in depravity. B, the Lord responds to this growth in depravity with grief and judgment. And C, yet there is grace. And that's really the, the theme of the text. Remember how we've been looking at this study of Genesis, and we've seen these, this strange Hebrew word, Toledot, and that's ten times we find this word, Toledot, in the text of Scripture. Um, we are on the second one of these. This is how the Hebrew arranged, this is how Moses arranged Genesis. We've looked at heaven and earth, the Toledot, or the genealogy, or the generations, or the record, what became of Heavens and Earth in two, four through four twenty-six, and we started last week the second toledot. What became of Adam, or the toledot of Adam? Chapter five, verse one. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. That's genealogy is the word toledot. So this, this will go through chapter six, verse nine. The verse next week, you'll read verse nine. There says this is the genealogy of Noah, like the toledot of Noah. This is the way we describe and arrange Genesis, arranged in ten sections. Divided in half, five and five. So very clear arrangement there. Why this is important is the passage of scripture that we're looking at today belongs with chapter five more than it belongs with chapter six. Okay? In the Hebrew, there's no chapters. There's little paragraph markers and then these toledotes are like the chapters in Hebrew. And so this passage about the sons of God and the daughters of men and whatever these giants are and the wickedness and Noah finding, even the part about Noah finding grace is not really connected, uh, literarily to Noah and the flood. It's not really connected to what comes, it's connected to what he's already said. In other words, this is the concluding remarks about chapter 5 verse 1 where he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So, this is what became of Adam, and notably, his descendants through Seth. Of course, we saw last week, the last descendant through Seth that was marked is this guy named Noah. So, that's important interpretively, and I'll come back to that later. This is the concluding remarks about the generation of Seth, Adam through Seth. This is answering, this passage is answering perhaps an unasked question, but implied. And this is the question. In the next section, Moses, we read about this big flood. And we read about this guy named Noah and his kids and their wives get on this big boat. And they are saved. Eight people. How do we get from... Adam and Eve and Seth having children and children and children through a godly line, presumably, through the blessed line, and get all the way down to the 10th generation, and there's only eight people who believe in the whole world? How do we get there? How do we get from Adam begat this son, and this and and Enoch, and his walking with God, and Lamech, who says, God will send us relief. And Noah, this just man, how do we get there? Or or the question maybe is this, what about Noah's brothers and sisters? They didn't believe? What about Methuselah's grandkids? They didn't believe? Really? What about Enoch's kids? He was a man who walked with God. Remember, there's long lives, right? So they're still alive, and their kids are. That's what this is answering. This is the conclusion of what happened to the godly line of Seth. Where you can get to the end, and you're like, so eight people in the line are righteous. That's important interpretively. Now, how this text is set up is, is, and and the the, the nerds out there are going to sort of love this, uh, is set up with... um, Synthetic parallelism okay, That sounds like, okay, what's that? Essentially it's a very common Hebrew way of writing What it is, is essentially you take A idea, a premise And then you give a response to that premise An A and then a B And then you reword and rework And expand on that first premise A prime And then you rework and expand on the second response B prime It's a very common, like, book of Proverbs is filled with this kind of poetry and, and it's, this is what Moses is doing in this text here. And I just want to walk through this with you in the text. So, well, the first premise is simply this it's found in verses one through three, or uh, one through two. It's this approaching the end of the age of Adam, things look bad. And then the Lord's response So, Yahweh the Lord, in verse three, announces judgment. Well, let's expand on that first line again. The end of the age of Adam doesn't just look bad, it's overflowing with depravity. So here's an extended expression of the Lord's response. Not only what he says, but what he feels about it will be in this text. And the judgment he's determined because of it. Now there's one other element we'll get to later. There is a C and a C prime. But that's in verse 8 and that will come later in the text. So this is the, let me just show you this in case you're saying, okay, that's weird. Let's look at the text. Look at it there. So notice the parallelism, one and two. A, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, sons of God saw daughters of men, they took wives for themselves. Now look down at verse four, do you see parallelism there? There were fallen ones on the earth, on the face of the earth in those days, sons of God came to daughters of men, they bore children to them. Parallel, right? Parallel ideas. Parallel ideas you got sons of God, sons of God. Daughters of men, daughters of men. They got married, they had children. Uh, There was great ones, nephilim, fallen ones on earth. Um, There was multiplication on earth. So there. Then look at the response. You can actually see parallelism in the response. And the Lord said, so the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. We'll talk about that in a minute, but things are really bad, is what it's saying there. Or, the wickedness was great. I will destroy man whom I have created. His days will be 120 years he's got limited days. So you see the parallelism in these two things. But you can notice that 1 through 3, 1 through 2 versus 1 through 2 there is a little bit more or less detailed but then 6 4 and 6 5 is more detailed. And the first response is very short. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man for his deed, flesh. His days will be 120 years. But then verses 5 through 7 talks about how the Lord feels about it and what he thinks about it and what his response about it and more details of what he's going to do. So this is what is called synthetic parallelism. If you're ever curious and you're working through some Hebrew texts of scripture, um, it's actually synthetic parallelism extended or explained. And, and that's what this is. So, this is how Moses arranges this. Now, this is important because it helps us understand what's going on in the text from the text itself. And I wanted to show this to you so that you would know that I'm not just telling you you should believe or believe, think this way. That I want you to see it. I want you to see what God's word is doing here. So, this is the parallelism. Let's start with A then, the setting, verses 1 through 2. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And right away, this is the chief difficulty that all those scholars said in the text of Scripture, identifying or understanding what he means by these sons of God. How one views that, how one understands the term sons of God here, determines the rest of the interpretation of the whole text. So it all hinges on this. And there are essentially three views. Now, these are very widespread. Um, In other words, it's not like one main view and then a bunch of, like, and a couple, like, really obscure ones. These these have been debated over centuries. And we're going to go through those three views on Wednesday. We're not going through them today. Instead, I'm going to tell you what I believe to be the correct view is and why. And these are the three views. Either the sons of God are royal rulers, and the daughters of men are their harems that they created. So the ancient idea, this, and this is the oldest interpretation, by the way. This is the, the one that, um, well, the, the oldest Jewish interpretation um, that the, the rabbinical schools today teach this one in Israel. The second view, and this is probably the one that gets the most excitement out of people. I won't tell you what John Calvin said about this view until Wednesday, but it's very excitable. See, I'm trying to you see, give commercials throughout the sermon today. Um, but that's that these sons of God are fallen angels, and essentially the daughters of men are human women. In other words, it was this sort of view that fallen angels, either possessed or embodied with human bodies and had sexual intercourse with women and created these giants or these uh, fallen ones, these Nephilim on the earth. That's this view. This is actually the, the um, most common modern view of this one, is this one right here. And uh, most modern scholars take that view. There. The third view is that this, sons of God, those are, it's a genitive of quality, godly sons, that these are the descendants of Seth, of Adam through Seth. And that through irreligious intermarriage with the Canaanite line, the daughters of men, their children, their hearts went after the paganism of the Canaanite line, and through intermarriage over ten generations Society delve deeper and deeper into anti-God thinking. Now, this doesn't get a lot of likes on internet, but my view is that that's the right view. It's the most most logical view from the context in the text. It's not as weird as the fallen angels one, and the royal rulers one is sort of... I like the view, but we'll talk more on Wednesday about that. But this one seems to fit, and the reason for this, the reason why I believe it's this one right here, um, and not the fallen angels, of the royal rulers, I'm not going to talk about why I think those are wrong, but why I think this one is right, is because, it, first of all, it fits the context so well. As I said, this is the Toledot at the end of the section of the Sethite line. This is the conclusion of the text about what happened to the Sethite line. So it makes sense that that's how the conclusion would conclude with the Sethite line. Secondly... It is a very common Pentateuchal, um, even Old Testament problem where intermarriage of God's chosen people with the pagan people of the land is forbidden. It's going to be forbidden in Exodus 34 16 in the law and Deuteronomy 7 3. And it's all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And it's very likely that Moses, the author of the whole book, of all the five books, is beginning this thing that's going to be repeated throughout what he's going to write in the Pentateuch. Here's the problem when you intermarry with the Egyptians. And here's the problem when you intermarry with the Canaanites, which will be forgiven, which we find in the book of Judges, this horrible situation. And here's the problem when you come back from captivity and you intermarriage with them again, and then your children follow after their gods. And here's what's going to destroy. The entire kingdom and divide the kingdoms of God when Solomon's many wives take his heart away from God. Here's that. And it seems like this is a subtle preview of the dangers that will be expanded upon throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And thirdly, that is, this issue is often described in the Old Testament as the root of the downfall of God's chosen nation. I mentioned already the book of Judges. We'll read the text later about that. But Solomon, isn't that like sown to be the root of Solomon's downfall? Now, not the reason for it. It was his own heart. But sort of the thing that led him away from his father David was his many wives of foreign pagan belief. Ezra comes back right after the captivity of Israel from Babylon. And he is dismayed that they came back from Babylon and first thing they did was start marrying all the pagan unbelievers in the land. And he chases them out and you know, does this really interesting thing in the book of Ezra. And then Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, this, like, this is what's happened. You've divorced the wife of Uruth or your, your believing wife for a pagan woman. And he talks about the divorce that is so distasteful and brings the bloodshed of God upon him. And it's really not just the concept of divorce. It's the idea of them leaving their believing wife and going after pagan wives. And so this is a common theme through the Bible as a root, and so it fits the context very well. Now, on Wednesday, we'll discuss sort of the problems with the view or some of the things, but just know right now that, as one author said, sons of God could be translated correctly, godly sons, meaning, and not saying that they were good kids, but saying of the godly sons, of those that were the children of God, or as we know with Israel later on, they're constantly called the children of God, the godly children. So, that's the view I think here, and I think it fits the context. I'm going to just assume that's correct, and then prove that Wednesday, and so we're going to move on in the text with that. Now, I want to say a quick note, because hearing such a view might cause some to think that, well, I married an unbeliever. What do I do with this? My spouse is an unbeliever. Understand that this is that this sermon and the text here is not a judgment or a condemnation against those who are married to an unbelieving or to a pagan. In fact, the New Testament says that if you are married to somebody who's not a believer, you're to stay with them and pray for them and love them and serve them and trust God that he will redeem them. But primarily, I just want to do a quick application that this is a warning to the unmarried, to the youth. This is a warning. God's grace is abundant. And a good marriage and family with interreligious perspectives does happen. But know that it is the exception, not the norm. And young people who think, but I will save him or her. I will fix it. It won't happen to us. We'll get married and then he'll just like or have our kids and they'll be it's just going to work out. I humbly submit Genesis 6 and only 8 people entering the ark of salvation as evidence to the contrary. And I'll just leave it there. What is the root here? This seems to be portraying this marriage between the Cainite line and the Sethite line as the sort of the multiplication of depravity. But it's not really why. It's the heart of man that is the problem. And in the text of Scripture, what's fascinating to me is that you actually can see something. Maybe you'll notice this. What did they do? Well, first of all, the sons of God or the people of God, the Sethite line, saw the daughters of men. What did they see? They saw that they were beautiful. By the way, that's the word tov or the word good. So they saw that they were good and they took wives for themselves. Does that ring any bells with you in Genesis to this point so far? There was this lady named Eve who saw the fruit that it was tov, good, for food. And so she took and gave to her husband and he ate with her. And there is certainly... Certainly, this there are echoes of what we saw in the first fall of humanity, and what is happening here. They see, it's good, it's mine. In fact, the emphasis here at the end, and they took wives for themselves of all they chose. That's rather um, expressive. Could have just said they got married. They took wives. But Moses wants to point out, no, 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 it's not just they took wives. They saw, they said, I want it, and they took it what they chose. In other words, in here, there is another subtle description by Moses that they really did not care what God saw as good, what he gave to them. They said, it's what I want, and because I want it, it's good. I'll take it. It's mine. That is the root of our sin. That is the heart of rebellion. It reminds me a little bit like the Judge Solomon. Or not uh, not um, Solomon, sorry. The Judge Samson. Remember the story of Samson? One of his first things he da- was his downfall was he told his parents, There's a woman over there. She pleases me. Get her for me. And you see the rabid depravity of this Judge Samson. Whom God was gracious toward. And that's the attitude that is being described here. Is that not the attitude of Cain? I saw what I wanted to do. I did what I want to do. And I took a life to justify it. Is that not the attitude of Lamech who we read about last week? I saw a young man. He bruised me. It was not good for me. I took his life. This Expressive individualism this rabid autonomy that just plagues our hearts Where we think what do I want? What's good for me? What is the best that's going to give what, what I think is beautiful and that's what matters Regardless of what God has to say about it regardless of what truth has to say about it. I want it It's mine. And that is the attitude that's being described in this setting here. So that sets the stage The merging of the godly with the ungodly, resulting in more ungodliness, is the fruit of the root of a denial of God's absolute authority over human hearts. So what's the Lord's response? The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Remember how I mentioned that scholar who said every verse is fraught with exegetical difficulty. That's the problem. You could just solve the sons of God issue, but then you have verse 3, which is filled with all sorts of exegetical problems and difficulty. Here's why. Um, It's it's just fascinating to me, and you'll pardon me if I get sort of geeky about it at all. But the word spirit has two possible meanings in the Hebrew. It either means the spirit of God... Or the spirit of man, which he gave to him. The spirit I gave, or my spirit itself. And, the word spirit is the word ruha, which means actually in Hebrew, breath, or life. So, which one is it? How do we know? And here's the funny part. There's nothing in the grammar to tell us which way to take it. It's sort of a guess. right? And then, the word strive, also has two possible meanings in Hebrew. It either means to battle or actually three possible meanings in Hebrew. It means either to battle, to strive, to fight, or it means to shield, to protect, or the word yadan means um, to remain or to abide. We don't have a lot of English words that do this, so it kind of makes it tough. And then we get this word flesh, which has two possible meanings. It either means like the weakness of like, you know, your, your skin, your blood, your flesh, or we know it can be used sometimes referred to wickedness, corruption, the fleshly nature. <laughs> and then, just this wasn't enough. What in the world is 120 years? Like that's, that stuff seems like an out-of-nowhere number. Yet his days or his lifespan or the number of days left or 120 years, and so we have all these sort of like exegetical difficulties. Once again, I'll try to deal more with this on Wednesday, um, but there's two real possible interpretations, I think. One is this, and this is this one right here. Uh, my divine spirit, my Ruha, God is saying, I, I my, as God, I will not continue to contend, to convict and, and you know, contend, Or shield him, maybe perhaps, from my judgment. I will not continue to strive with man against his wickedness forever or uh, endlessly. Because he has proven himself corrupt or weak. So, I'm going to begin to shorten his lifespan... And the longest he's going to live, his days, his lifespan, will be 120 years. That's either possible one interpretation. By the way, you can even mix and match these a little bit. But that's possibly one interpretation of that there. The other one is this. The breath, the life, the spirit I gave man, will not remain, and that's how the Septuagint translation takes takes it, remain in him forever. In other words, that's a euphemistic way of saying he's not going to live much longer my spirit my life i give him will not remain in him endlessly he's going to die because he is corrupt or he is weak and i think corrupt is the right one there the time he has left are 120 years so god is either saying i'm going to i'm tired of this battle against humanity or he's saying i'm going to wipe him out i'm done With his life, with his living. His spirit's gone. His life, his breathing, his breath of life is gone. And he's either saying, so I'm going to radically shorten his lifespan." Remember they had lived long lives to like 120 years. Or he's starting the stopwatch of the countdown. In 120 years, his spirit is done. His life is gone. Once again, I'll just tell you what I believe here. I think it's the second one here. I think it's this one. The main reason for this is the breath or the ruha, that use of the word spirit there is used in Genesis 7 the breath of life in man that God destroys in the flood. And I think that he's in chapter 7 he's saying what he prophesied here. So I think that's what he's doing. He's saying I'm going to take him out. I'm done. I'm judging him. Taking his life away. And I think it's a stopwatch or a countdown clock. A bit of an ominous one. 120 years. Because when you look at the lifespans after the flood, they shortened, but not to 120 years for another 10 generations (laughs) before they shortened then. That just doesn't seem like it fits the context. But the idea that time is short. The idea of a parent saying, I'm starting the countdown. Three, two... (laughs) That sort of is the idea here of God saying, I'm done. He's done. So that's the response of the depravity. Let's see the setting extended, chapter 4. This goes back, remember, it's parallel to that first verse of him saying, here's the problem. Here's Here's the problem going on. And here's what he says. There were giants, and I'll come back to that in a moment, um, on the earth in those days. And so what follows, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty ones of antiquity, men of renown or men of name. I got, we got to deal, this is, like, once again, this is that text, the word giants there. Um, just the word giants is not in the Hebrew at all. The reason it's here in translated giants It's because the oldest translation, the Septuagint, the translation from Hebrew to Greek before Jesus was even alive on the earth. um, It translated this Hebrew word Nephilim as gigantus or giant. The reason they did that, I don't know. Except that this word is found Nephilim is found one other place in the entire Bible. And it's found in Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, when it talks about the children of Israel being scared to go into the land of Canaan because he said there are giants in there, there are Nephilim in there, and there were like grasshoppers before them. And so they didn't want to go conquer the land. It's the only other time this word is used. This isn't the word used for, for Goliath. It's not, that's not the same word. So it, I think that that was a mistake. They shouldn't have translated it gigantus. Because Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word to fall. It literally means fallen ones. There were fallen ones on the earth in those days. Now this starts to demystify it a little bit. Because since I've already asserted that sons of God are not some strange demonic creature or whatever. That, and we're talking about the Sethite line and the Canaanite line. Then there's no reason to understand Nephilim as anything weird or strange. It's describing the great depravity of. Of that time period. So if you were to read a story. About King Arthur. And the knights of the round table. And the story might say something like that. In the day of the great kings. You would like have this idea. Of the age in which we lived. Or the golden age of civilization. You'd have this idea. But here's how Moses describes. The pre-flood world. In the age of fallenness. In the age of Nephilim. In the time when the people on the earth are known for their depravity. Now, do we have anything in the context that helps us see this? Absolutely. We looked at it last week. Remember that guy named Lamech? You could say, Moses could say, in the days of the Lamechites, you know, the ones like Lamech. You know, the people who murder, brag about it, threaten their wives. All because they got a little bruise. And what is being said, I think, by this idea of Nephilim on the earth, the the days of the Nephilim, the the time of the Nephilim, the time of the fallen ones on the earth, what I think is being understood is that when we read about Lamech, we need to understand that Lamech was normal in that time. He's not the exception. To find a non-murderer in the days before the flood would be rare. To find one who was truly faithful to his family would be rare. And that's what Moses is getting across. And the reason he's getting this across this way is he's setting up the reason why God is going to do what he's going to do. He's helping us make sense of it. Somebody might say, why would God send a flood and destroy the entire world? Isn't that sound a little bit harsh, a little overreactive? And I think Moses would respond, you don't know what the days were like. (coughs) It was the time of the Nephilim, the time of great depravity. And he's going to go on and describe that. He says, this is what happens. When the sons of God, remember, that's the... Sethite line, came into the daughters of men, parallel, he's talked before, but instead of talking about them getting married, he says, and they bore children to them, which is the fruit of marriage, right? So he's just expanding on the same idea. But what he is saying here is that it's not just that they got married in an unbelieving relationship or a paganism, it's that what happened to their children after they got married, and their grandchildren, and their great-grand, and so on and so on. Now, we do have a great example of this, and I want to read it for you in the book of Judges. Book of Judges, um, chapter 2, really echoes what's going on here. By the way, there's one thing we'll learn as we go through the Old Testament, and that is that history continually repeats itself. People do what people do, and they've always done, right? Right? So Judges chapter 2, uh, verse lost my place here. Judges 2, verse 10. This is, we know the book of Judges is like one that's horrific, right? This is what he says. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, people after Joshua, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So how do you have a generation that rises up? After them that does not know the Lord. What does, how does that happen? Well, it's described in the book of Judges in chapter 3. Verse 5 Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So that sounds very similar, doesn't it? Because this is a repetitive thing throughout Israel's history. So what's this last phrase? It says, and those were... The mighty ones of antiquity, men of renown. The word mighty ones is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's the word geborim. It's the word uh, that's used of David as mighty men. that were powerful warriors. And that word geborim means warriors or strong ones or mighty ones. Extremely powerful individuals. So that's what that means. But what does this have to do with their depravity? Like so they were really strong guys? (laughs) What's he talking about? Well, that last phrase says, men of renown, or literally, that's men whose name you know. Legends. Now, writing in this context, once again, what names stand out to you <laughs> from the context? Well, he's listed a bunch of names. Do you remember? I think we have an example of this. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I think this is what we have here. Remember Lamech? And he's described as like this horrible, wicked man, and we could say he's like this Nephilim. He's this great fallen one, right? Remember what his sons uh, Jubal, Jabel, and Tubal, and they're men of renown, right? Known for artistry, known for livestock, known for metal. In other words, I think we have that like example that. This is the great time of the Nephilim. This is a time of great human advancement. This is a time when, when mighty people rise up in authority and power. And where famous legends are born. But yet what are they known for in their fame? Well, it describes in the extended response what they're primarily known for. What they're renowned for. What they're... What they are mighty in, the Lord's extended response. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The time of the Nephilim, the time of humanity's involvement and the explosion of human population was an explosion of depravity, of fallenness, of paganism, of murderous violence, adultery, idolatry. It's just the explosion of wickedness in that thousand plus years of human history. Great in the earth. The pagan and godly alliances became purely pagan. And so this answers the question what became of Adam, who had a son Seth, who had a son Enosh, who had a son, go on and on and on? What became? Paganism won. Rebellion won. Godlessness won. One out. This becomes the principle of humanity rather than what was intended to be the principle of humanity, and that was the presence of God. It's enough to make you angry, isn't it? Right? I think there is a little bit in the response here, friends, irony. The Lord saw. They saw. It's good. I'll have it. The Lord saw. It's bad. He'll take him away. The Lord sees the wickedness, and so he takes action. Very extensive description of how bad it was, though, in the Hebrew text. And I just want to hit that very quickly before we move past it. In the middle of this verse, it says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, there's different words you can use. Continually could also be constantly. Um, intents could be purpose. But they're, they're all very similar meanings, right? But I want to just point out to you, in my study of, of Hebrew, this is actually a very unique way of writing Hebrew. This isn't normal. They're very poetic, uh, very rhythmic. Um, but Hebrew poetry didn't generally use adjectives very much. They expressed um, they expressed things in symmetry and in parallelism and stuff like that. But they didn't do. It was more of a, a really a Western thing, a Greek thing that do a lot of adjectives. And we are that way. We do a lot of adjectives. But this stands out from the rest of the Hebrew in the text as sort of a with sort of a highlight on it because this is literally word for word there. Every word that is accounted for in this phrase let's line in the english is accounted for in a hebrew equivalent word every purpose of their hearts of the thoughts of their hearts every little inclination of the very heart the deepest part of them was only nothing but evil constantly i want to say this very carefully i don't believe that we ought to look back in history and judge those before us or those after us as worse than us. I think that's not a really faithful historical, that we're always living in the golden age, right? Or, or our youth. When we were 10 years old, it was the golden age of humanity. Um, that's our tendency. But I do believe that God is expressing that the time that we're looking at prior to this flood is and is yet unprecedented In human depravity. I just want to say this. I want to say it carefully. I don't even think that this would be described of this age. As bad as you look around you. The reason for that. Is because I think if it looked as bad as this age. We'd be getting on an ark. It'd be over. Because that's what God says. I do believe it will get here. Because the scripture says, as in the days of Noah, so will be in the days when the Son of Man returns. So how will we know it's reached this level of depravity? When you see King Jesus descending on his, sword, on his horse with his sword coming out of his mouth, that's when you know we've hit that spot. And my point is simply this. It's, it's, this was really, really wicked. If you were to think through all the evil and wickedness that has been done to you or those that you know and you love and you care about, understand that this was what was happening continually, always with delight and joy in the people of the earth that day. So I would imagine this response I expect in this text is God's, and I would expect the text to read next. And the Lord's anger was kindled, and his wrath burned with exceeding fury over this great wickedness. And yet, that's not what we read next in the text. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are texts that read that way. And it is just and right when God is angry at the wicked every day. But Moses doesn't want us to see that. What does the divinely inspired author want us to see and feel at the great wickedness? Notice the words. And the Lord was sorry. Some translations say regretted. It's probably not the best use of this word, Naham. Because the word at its root means to weep. The Lord was sorry. Sorry that he had made man on the earth and then he emphasizes it and he was grieved deeply pained the word grief here in the hebrew is that of one who is wailing the loss of their loved one he's deeply pained in his heart did you catch did you catch the parallelism The heart of man is proudly bent on himself, but the Lord's heart is grieved. Did you expect, after reading and hearing about the great wickedness of man, that we would see Moses describing the Lord's response in tears and grief and sorrow? This isn't the point of the text, but maybe that should be a little bit of a lesson for us, because this is very easy for us to see wickedness done in the world, and for us to get incensed, and I don't think there's wrong, anything wrong with being incensed over unrighteousness and injustice, but have we wept? Have we grieved? Do we have the heart of our Lord who sees it and weeps, grieves over it? We even grieve over the own sin in our own hearts. We weep over that. So the Lord says, and this is the balanced parallelism, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. He says it again, for I am sorry. I am grieved that I have made them. Now, quickly, because we're running out of time Quickly, I want to just point out to here, what do we see here? What's the picture going on here? It is true that God is angry at the wicked. It is true that he's, he's anger over the injustice, and he ought to be, and he's righteous, and he will bring vengeance, he says, upon that which is wicked on the earth. But this text today is not describing our Lord as the angry king but as the grieving father. But it goes beyond that. God who is deeply grieved and perfectly and righteously loves deeply the creation he made. And contra Adam and Eve who are pointing fingers, God sees the wickedness and where does he point the finger? I made them. I created them. I'll take care of it. No, I'm not saying God is blaming Himself for man's sin. I'm saying that God is actually taking a responsibility that is perhaps you could say not His to take. It was man's choice. But this is what the grieving father does. And if you could just imagine with me, and this is a, a crazy illustration. I couldn't figure out how to express this. But let's say that one of my sons... Becomes a serial killer, a horrible, horrible person. Gets, and, 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 I, and I can, and let's say I can get to this place, and a lot of parents couldn't do this, can get to the place where he is tried by the judge, he's sentenced to death, and let's say I can even get to that place where I assent to it. I say, yeah, he needs to die. M- most, and I'm not even trying to argue pro or against, I'm just saying the difficulty of a parent's heart to their child, right? Most would say, well, someone's got to stand in his corner, someone's got to defend him, Right? But let's say you go so far as to even say, no, he should die. But what if, what if at the day of his execution, I walked in to the warden's office, to the prison, and I said, let me put the poison in his body. I made him. I'll take care of him. I'm not saying a father should do that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying that that's describing the sort of words that the Lord is using here. I made them. I created them. I am deeply grieved and weeping over them. And I will blot them out. In a sense, he's taking responsibility for his creation's sin. It's not the last time God will take responsibility for his creation's sinfulness. Not the last time he chooses to be the one who says, It's on me. I will put them on me. And I will take the injection in myself for them. And that leads us to see. Because in all of this, in the conclusion, we see this description, the first time it comes up in all of Scripture. But Noah found or discovered. Grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We have the setting, the explosion of evil. We have the response, a determination of judgment even through tears and sorrow. But we are surprised by grace. Grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, pleasure, joy, favor. And that stands in contrast to the deep grief and pain. But he found joy in Noah. But there was delight in Noah. But there was pleasure from God in Noah. But he smiled at Noah. That's the description there. Why? It can't be because Noah was good... The first instance we have of Noah after the flood and after the ark and after the provision of God is he grows a bunch of grapes and then gets drunk on his own wine. It can't be because he's good. So why? Not because he was righteous and obedient. The part about Noah being righteous and obedient is written about after the part about him having and discovering grace. So grace is the reason for his righteousness, not the result of his righteousness. This statement, Noah found grace, sticks out as the final words of the Toledot of Adam. Without explanation, without reason, without logic. Because it's illogical. It's supernatural. It's not something. Grace is not something you discover in this world. It's something out of this world. It's something from its divine and outside of us. It stands here without explanation, without reason, because grace is 100% God's free delight upon those whom he chooses to set it. Noah discovered grace because God is gracious, not because Noah was righteous. So, we see a C, Noah found grace. But I like, Hebrews are always filled with parallelism, right? So, where's the C prime? Where's the parallel idea to this? It's chapter 6, 9 through chapter 8, 22. You see, ultimately... The story that we're going to run into now with Noah and the flood and the ark is not about destruction. It's not about judgment. It's not about all that. That's what this text was about. It's about Noah finding grace. What happens when one experiences the grace of God? Let's tell you what happens. This is the Toledot of Noah. That's what's going on in the text. You see, what we find happens because Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. He is imputed with righteousness. He is tasked with obedience. He is rescued from judgment on a big boat. He is blessed and assured with promises and a covenant of perpetual mercy because he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord because God says, I'm gracious. Now, Noah is a figure. He is a type, but not of Christ. Noah is a type of us, of the Christian. He's a figure representing the Christian, the one who is in Christ or in whom Christ's spirit dwells. And so the truth applies today. And this is my final words of encouragement God, Christian, God is pleased with you, hen, because he chooses to find pleasure in you. So on your best days of obedience, God is no more graciously inclined to you than he is today. And on your worst days of depravity, he is no less inclined to be gracious towards you than he is today. Because you are imputed, because of the grace upon you, you are imputed with his righteousness. You are tasked with obedience to him, not as the means of grace, but the result of it. You are rescued from judgment, not in a big boat, but in a big savior. And you are blessed and assured with covenants of perpetual mercy. Those who are in Christ. such a difficult text, I think. And yet, the simple simple truths that emerge from it. One, humanity's depravity is great. The Lord's grief is deep. God's grace is greater.